Hi, everybody. This is Jose Formoso. Thank you for listening to the El Progreso podcast. We're excited you're here. I just wanted to note that the following episode was recorded while we were still calling the show the Tequeria podcast, in case you are confused by some of the references inside. Other than that, there should be no content differences. Since we're here, I do want to ask you for a favor. Please follow El Progreso podcast and myself on the social network of your choice. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Pandora, and the other pod networks. It really helps us continue doing the show. Thank you, and see you at El Progreso. Points of Presence Media, this is Jose Formoso for the Tequeria Podcast, featuring stories from Latinx people in tech, including from the nonprofits serving the largest Latinx community in the United States. The show is produced by a new media company started by myself and some of my friends who are editors and reporters at major publishers, as well as leaders at top tech companies. When we started Points of Presence 18 months ago, we wanted to create a network of podcasts where listeners could find underreported stories from marginalized communities that people could connect with on a personal level. We've been working on several pods, including an investigative reporting one you'll be hearing about soon. But we decided to start with the Latinx and tech one because we felt it filled a huge gap in media. So when we found out about the Tequeria community and everything that was happening there, we thought, Let's partner with them and do it together. Before I explain why I think Tequeria is specifically awesome, I want to talk about a recent important reminder I received about why community is important in the first place. I was lucky enough to attend a talk by Stanford professor James Doty at the Women's Startup Lab in Menlo Park, California. Dr. Doty is a neurosurgeon and an entrepreneur who has studied the effects of positive thinking. Dr. Doty said that in the regions of the world where people have the best health, where they were the happiest and where they lived the longest, were in places where they had the strongest connection to their communities. They called these places blue zones. Doty also told us that in our age of technology, this type of community is harder to attain on a person-to-person level, but that since our brains are hardwired to look for community to survive, our DNA, after all, hasn't changed for 200,000 years, we must be a part of more connected communities to be happier. And despite the potential problems of digital communities, they can also be part of the solution. So in the survival and happiness context, a place like Tequeria makes a lot of sense. Why? Well, Latinx people in tech today are still marginalized. We all know that. There are recent economic reports, such as one from the nonpartisan Pew Research Center, that says only 3% of people in tech identify as Latinx or Hispanic even though they constitute about 20% of the U.S. population. That's crazy. Many are still discriminated against in the workplace, or maybe they're passed over for promotions, or sometimes don't even get the opportunity to get inside the doors. So to move up, Latinx have come together to help each other with the help of some great non-Latinx allies. And Tequeria has also been a place for a couple of years now, I'm talking about this community here, where Latinx and tech have found mentorship opportunities, events and jobs listings, and they've even been able to set up in-person get-togethers. This podcast seeks to be a part of that rise by telling their stories. The podcast will feature in-depth interviews with people inside and outside of the community that are relevant and interesting. We'll also attend important events that matter, 
and tell stories sometimes in surprising ways about what it's like to be a Latinx in tech. I want to tell you something that's really, really cool about Tequeria and that I really like. Inclusivity in all aspects. This is why the term Latinx will be used throughout as it is gender neutral. Tequeria also doesn't leave out people outside of the Latin American mainland with people from the Caribbean, Haiti, Brazil, and those identifying as Afro-Latinx, Asian Latinx, or LGBTQ all a part of it. So if you think one of your friends should be a part of it, if they have a great personal story or maybe a great anecdote we can add, or maybe they just want us to investigate something, we are reporters after all, please let me know at our email at tequeriapodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to find out more about the community itself or want to join it, go to tequeria.org. On the first episode of the Tequeria podcast, you'll hear from two people who are part of the community that share interesting similarities, including the fact that both were the first person in their families to go to college. As someone who was also the first in my own family, I thought it was very important to feature them because the story of all Latinx in the United States is, in a way, one of breaking barriers, sometimes struggling mightily to bridge two cultures at the same time and staying sane enough to be successful and to sometimes start their own crazy happy families. We all know that's an expectation, right? But to me, all of that starts with education. Both guests are also at the beginning of their careers, which is really important to us at the Points of Presence Network from a socioeconomic perspective. Frankly, we're tired of media that only covers the 1%. We'll start off with Gabriel Lujan, a 40-year-old San Francisco native who just moved to Los Angeles to start his tech career as a software developer. He worked as an audio and visual tech at companies for 10 years until he decided he needed to get a better paying job that used the whole might of his creativity. He ended up finding it in software engineering. Then we'll talk with Stephanie Bajamon, a first-generation Colombian-American whose college excursion led to a difficult social situation for her mom and whose family was nearly ensnared by the subprime mortgage crisis. For both, you will also see how music plays a really important part in their lives. Thank you so much for being here. And why don't we get started by telling us what you've been doing for the last two years and how you've gotten yourself to the beginning of a new software career at the age of 40. Sure. So yeah, so like you said, I'm actually about to start a new job. It's actually in the next 30 weeks, I'm going to be moving down to LA. This journey actually specifically for my first software gig has started three years ago. I actually was kind of starting to read books, do things online. And I really wanted to take it seriously, the idea of becoming a professional developer, because I'd always done it on the side. I'd built websites here and there. I'd read books. And so I really started looking at it like, well, how can I make this a full-time career? Because I actually enjoyed doing this more than anything else that I was doing career-wise or work-wise. And so one thing led to another, online courses, books, YouTube videos. Ultimately, I ended up finding App Academy. Uh, through just random online searches. And App Academy is the company that Gabriel says changed his career prospects for good. What's App Academy? A coding boot camp or a school where people learn how to program computers in about three months with the specific purpose of getting them trained for jobs at tech companies, including learning how to optimize their performance during technical parts of job interviews where applicants are expected to solve problems on whiteboards at a moment's notice. These camps have been around for nearly a decade and many have come and gone. App Academy is one of the original ones, and we're the first for-profit school to offer a deferred tuition program, which means that students may pay an upfront check of about $2,000, in addition to fees needed to move to San Francisco or New York, 
where the boot camps are physically located out of their own pocket. These students are also expected to fully concentrate on the school up to 80 hours a week, leaving no time to make money on the side. Some of the camps have been controversial. One of them recently was found to have been overestimating its placement job numbers, but many have gotten into the industry because of it and do love it. Full disclosure, I used to work at App Academy, but I have no investments there and no one told me to talk about them. What happens is you're immersed into the world of programming and code and they build up your skills and they claim that they can take, can take anybody from beginner all the way to software developer in 12 weeks. And so I found that and what worked for me or what I liked about it the best was the fact that they have a deferred tuition payment business model, which to me means two things. It means that one, they're invested in the people that they're bringing into the school and that, you know, they don't care about just getting people in, getting them out, having them pay money, and then they don't care about them afterwards. They really care about, you know, the students and what they do afterwards and how their career grows. The other part of it is it also indicates that there's a high level because of that business model. You have to prove that you're able to get into this. And so it's not just, again, it's not like the other boot camps I'm imagining where it's just kind of get anybody in, get anybody out, and that's it. They care about numbers. You know, for App Academy, it feels definitely more like quality over quantity. So you mentioned the payment aspect of your decision. Was that the main reason why you decided to go there instead of other boot camps? Yeah, okay. So it was the main and because of that, it, it was it worked for me because, you know, financially, you know, things have always been a struggle, just to be full disclosure. You know, living in the Bay Area, growing up in the Bay Area and the way everything's progressed economically, that I found myself falling further and further behind in terms of how much I was making versus how much I was doing. Edward Apana of South San Francisco, married with two children, says the cost of living in the Bay Area is a challenge. So to hear that six figures is now considered low income sounds a bit shocking. Over a hundred grand, oh my goodness. But not that hard to believe. Between the two of us, we could still make, you know, San Francisco, San Mateo County home. But if one of us were to, you know, to lose our job, it'd be kind of tough. Joe Vasquez, KPIX5. And so it just kind of created this gap for myself where the deferred payment plan really worked for my situation because it gave me a chance to really pursue something that I wanted to do while also not having to invest or be, I guess, fortunate enough to have the, that amount of money up front. And so it just it, it created a good opportunity for me to have that. So let's get into that part of the story. You mentioned that money was an issue a little bit, which is especially critical when you're getting older. Please tell us what you were doing before you got into the boot camp. Yeah, so so I'm 40 years old. I uh, just turned 40 a few months ago. Um, actually, I don't know. People make a big deal about 40. I don't really care about it. It's a, yeah. just another number. Um, but as far as what I was doing, prior to App Academy, I was working at Uber, and I was doing corporate AV for them. For those who aren't familiar with AV, it's simple. It's audiovisual work that involves setting up conference rooms, projectors, television screens, and all the rest of internal event production at big and small companies. But most AV jobs, including in the Bay Area, do not pay well in the short or long term. According to Indeed.com, the yearly salary is between $42,000 a year and $80,000, with a median of about $60,000. But that's about half of the yearly salary of a first or second year software developer in Silicon Valley. Uh, Uber was the last stop that I was at doing that, but prior to there, I was working at LinkedIn. I'd worked at, you know, doing kind of more of the, the construction and the installation side for another company where they had clients like Google, YouTube, Twitter. So I had a lot of exposure into the tech world as a whole. 
through this type of career. Uh, but ultimately, I ended up just kind of getting burnt out and tired of it and realizing there was a low ceiling. And for how many years did you About do that? About 10 years. Um, and so one of the things that I mentioned to you kind of offline was that I had also attended another college and my, I have a background in audio engineering as well. And that was the corporate AV gig was kind of the first real thing that I took, I grabbed out of that school. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a common thing for that kind of trajectory because a lot of people, you know, getting into the music industry or the film industry is very tough for new people. So corporate AV is just always something that's there. Is that something that you originally thought about doing when you were doing audio and visual work? Not at all. Yeah. No, I mean, my plan was to either get into game design, game audio design, or kind of like doing thing with, things with music, whether it was, you know, in the studio or live or, or that sort of thing. Which connects to your love of music. Tell me more about how music has been a big part of your life and what kind of music are you into? Yeah, yeah. So, so music's actually been around my whole life. My dad was a musician. He got a degree in music. He'd played in bands from the time he was a kid up until, you know, his death. And so my sister actually started singing with him as a kid as well. So growing up, I'd always had that around me. My my uncle played. They always actually that's one of my favorite memories is we would have uh, like parties or get togethers at my uncle's house. And they my dad and my uncle would sit down and play songs together. Johnny Cash, you know, uh, all the old country stuff from the 60s and whatnot. So that was really fun. Um, but yeah, I've been playing music. I still play music to this day and actually kind of full circle. My sister and I are now playing music together, going out and doing shows. Um, but yeah, that, that was kind of what was the genesis for me getting in or going towards the sound engineering program was because I've always done music. I've always been around it. I played shows, played in bands, did recorded an album, did mini tours. Gabriel is actually being modest. His band got some good notices over the years, but his time with the band actually had a bigger effect long-term on his life. His brother, who was also a musician and played with Gabriel on and off, was the first one to go to a sound engineering school and use it as a springboard to a successful job, giving Gabriel the idea to try investing in a for-profit school as a means to a new career. With many for-profits flaming out this decade because of allegations that some schools, like ITT Tech, made misleading claims about their training and defrauded their students, it wasn't a slam-dunk decision to make. But Gabriel worked to find a school with a good reputation and that could actually help him get what he wanted. We were both at a point in our lives where we were just kind of working odds and end jobs. You know, I was working in a warehouse doing shipping and receiving. He was working for like Circuit City or PetSmart. And it was just kind of that point in our 20s where like we needed to do something with our lives. Mm -hmm. So he found that school through another friend. They all kind of, it was just kind of like a domino effect. Like one person went, then another person went. And then like I was like, yeah, fuck it, I'll go too. Now let's go back to the role that finances played. We know it's hard to afford to live in the Bay Area. Prices have skyrocketed in the last 20 years. Do you have an example about how you lived paycheck to paycheck during that time and how that affected you? especially how you thought about yourself? Yeah. Well, on that point, you know, I've definitely always lived paycheck to paycheck just because of the fact that the jobs I had, you know, were either minimum wage or just above minimum wage. And, you know, cost of living, cost of everything, gas, you know, groceries around here in the Bay Area has always been at a much higher level than, you know, I could, not that I couldn't afford it, but it was, I couldn't afford it on a, on a level that, 
I guess the sustainable is, I guess, the best way I can think of it. And so... But that you could save money for it. Right, right? yeah. And actually, I was talking to my sister about this. Is the idea of, you know, when people say, like, oh, you should stop spending that three bucks a month on coffee every morning. The, the problem isn't spending $3 on coffee every morning. The problem is that if I have a major emergency in my life or a major catastrophe, that the amount of money I'm making doesn't allow me to be covered for that. You know, and so that's kind of the situation that I've always been in. In terms of, and that's also been a part of the reason why I did App Academy and pursued the software development. I'm tired of living that way, and I want to get to a point where, if you know, God forbid, anything happens to me or my family, that I'm able to at least take care of it from a financial standpoint. The cost of living issue is something everyone in the Bay Area really does worry about. Studies from think tanks to public universities in the last few years have found that the Bay Area is the most expensive part of the country to live in. Estimates from the Economic Policy Institute last year found, for example, that for a person to have a modest, adequate standard of living, it costs $5,194 a month, which adds up to $84,000 a year to live comfortably for one person. A median home in the area now is close to a million dollars. The median rent, according to a March 2019 survey by Apartment List, is $3,108. Gas is expensive. So is public transportation. Oh yeah, to live comfortably for a family of four, the Economic Policy Institute says they need to earn $148,000 a year. Needless to say, ah! I'd like to know more about the role that your parents played in your development. You said that you grew up in San Francisco? Uh, no, so we actually, well, so I've been kind of all over the place. I actually was born in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. We lived in the East Bay for a little bit of time. And then when I was about... We, and then we actually moved to New Mexico, where my dad's from, when I was about two or three, and then came back around when I, when I was around four or five, and then moved to South San Francisco and lived there for the next four or five years. And then from there, we moved to San Bruno. And that's basically where I, I consider the, the city that I really grew up in, because from there, it was like from the age of eight all the way to 18, that you know I had my formative years in terms of junior high, high school, meeting friends, and that sort of thing. So San Bruno is a really interesting place to grow up in the 90s, as Gabriel did. Located between Millbrae and South San Francisco, it is a small city of 42,000 plus, with a majority white population closely followed by a large Latino population. People there pretty much always get along, but neighborhoods are not mixed. In the last 15 years, relatedly, two major tech companies with large populations of non-diverse workers have moved in. YouTube now a subsidiary of Google, and Walmart Global E-Commerce Group. Google has poor numbers of Latinx representation or programs that can bring in members of the surrounding community into the company. And while the big search engine company has not publicly separated out its diversity report for YouTube, it is still struggling to hire for diversity, with only 5.7% of Google workers defined as Latinx as of last year, and only 3.3% of black workers. With more than 2,000 people in its staff inside its 1 million-plus square feet of office space, YouTube is San Bruno's biggest employer. San Bruno's Latinx population, by contrast, is about 29%. I asked Walmart Global e-commerce for the latest diversity numbers in the city, and I did not hear back from them. One more note about San Bruno. Protests have happened there against the social video giant particularly against those opposed to its algorithms that recommend videos and which may lead people, especially kids, to consume violent, sexual, or racist content. And some believe YouTube might benefit from hiring more diverse people on its staff 
to help make decisions about how to deal with that type of content. And then from there, it's still kind of bounced around a lot. But yeah, I'd say San Bruno is kind of like the core town that I grew up in. Um, but as far as like the role that my parents played, that actually makes me think of uh, a book that I read a few years back called The Celestine Prophecy, if you're familiar with it. And mm-hmm. there's like one major kind of uh, message that it has in it. And it's that every person gets like one major kind of ideology or one major belief from each parent. And when the book talked about that, I kind of thought about my own parents. And I hadn't really thought of it this way, but it's always something I had believed that what I got from my dad was it wasn't about money. It was about enjoying what you do. You know, that life is more about saying that you can look at what you do and be proud of it and have integrity. And then for my mom, the biggest thing that I remember is like, it's always about family. Like, I remember when me and my brother and my sister used to get in fights that her, she would always tell us, you know, don't let it get in the way. Don't let it come between you guys. And so that was kind of those two things, family and then, you know, integrity and kind of just enjoying what we do. Those are the two big messages that I got from my parents. You mentioned that your dad passed away. How did your mom react to the challenges you have given yourself now? Yeah, well, so unfortunately, they didn't get to see it. Um, yeah, uh, my dad died about six years ago. My mom was about four years ago. And so, yeah, thank you. I mean, it is what it is. You know, it's life. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. Um, I, and even further back, you know, my parents divorced at three. And my dad and I kind of had a, an estranged relationship. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think he, he never really had too much visibility into my life. But my mom was always there. And mm-hmm. she was, I mean, she loved me. She was proud of me no matter what. It's, yeah. yeah. And she would have been proud of this, just like anything else. It's just to see that I was pursuing something that I, you know, cared about and that I enjoyed, she would have been happy for me, so. You know, there's a lot of us in Tequeria that have discussed the importance of family challenges too. My parents also divorced and I'm not close with my father either. So those are circumstances that unfortunately a lot of us in the Latinx community go through. And what we've discussed is, you know, a way to get through that time and keep going forward is to think about the best moments while also being realistic and true to yourself and your own feelings about that experience. So moving on to thinking about living in the Bay Area and experiencing the highs and the lows, the changes, what is your perspective of what the industry, the tech industry has done to it now that you're leaving? I'm sure you've thought a lot about this. Yeah, I feel torn about it. Because of the fact that, I mean, one, it's on the surface, you know, there's economic growth, there's opportunity, there's jobs, there's all these different things coming into the area, which, you know, can be good. But I think kind of what you talked about, there's the culture shift, there's the the mentality change. And, and I think that's the part that sucks. And that's where I'm torn is because what's being pulled out from the Bay Area is, you know, just on like kind of tangent, tangible things, it's things like the mom and pop shops that have been in the, the city specifically, but in the Bay Area as well. The people that grew up here and, and, you know, have a love for this area and they're being forced to move out because they can no longer afford their rent or their whatever, their housing. KTV's Maureen Naylor, who brought us that report, has been looking into this and is in our South Bay Bureau tonight. Maureen, what a response. We heard from hundreds of people on Facebook. Fourth generation Californian Stephen Phillips wrote, In March 2018, I will sadly leave my history and my family behind. It's been a tough decision, but I see no hope for my home state. And Jay Intagliata wrote, I left California just last week for good. I lived in San Jose, 45 years, born and raised. It has become unappealing. We know the housing costs are killing people, and it's choking folks, and we got to do more to get housing built.
to me, it just, you know, I obviously don't know everybody. I haven't interviewed everybody, but it's, it's the feeling of that. It seems like it's, it's, I guess plastic is the way I'm thinking. Of. That's like the word that comes to mind. But it's the idea of that people just don't have the same kind of investment into the area, into how it thrives. You know, people that come in, it's it's like the, it's like okay, it's like another gold rush. But people aren't coming to stay; they're coming to just mine the the gold and then leave. And that's kind of how it feels: is that people aren't here because they love the area; they're here because there's you know money to be made. Quick follow up on the mindset of new Bay Area residents. It is not actually that simple to paint all people moving into the Bay with a brush as unloving, ungrateful folks. Many people I know who are not from here originally do work hard to learn about the culture. One friend actually tried to find the length of time a restaurant has been around the neighborhood to try to buy exclusively from them. It was a burrito place. Yet there are plenty who are, for example, unaware of the way their money can accelerate gentrification and erase long-standing cultural traditions. A recent Brunswick Group survey of tech workers found many newbies do appreciate the Bay Area for its unique culture. 3% of them, it found, saw it as an innovation hub that benefited from the openness to new ideas that are found here. And many attributed said cultural benefits to the work of diversity. The work still needs to be done by new residents, though, and that is obviously seen by locals like Gabriel. I think that's where I'm torn because while theoretically, you know, the opportunity that's coming in could be there for everybody, but a lot of times it's not just because of the way it's set up, you know, and the fact that it's it's actually also part of the reason why I'm leaving the barrier to go to a different job is because even for me as a coding bootcamp graduate and having my own experience prior to that, it's still difficult for me to get a job in the Bay Area because there is in my opinion, a lot of elitism and snobbiest, snobbiest attitudes, you know, in terms of tech and how who's going to get hired. Can you elaborate on that snobbery that you're feeling? You've definitely worked hard to get where you are, not only through the boot camp, but through finding a job on your own by sending dozens of resumes, right? Yeah. Well, so one is definitely the types of interviews that are happening here in the Bay Area versus elsewhere where I've interviewed in like New York and, uh, and SoCal and even in other parts of the country. And just the type of interview is a lot different in the sense that there you're being given more. And that's part of that is because you're getting Ivy League graduates coming to the Bay Area. You know, so like Facebook, Twitter, Google, they're getting all these Ivy League graduates that are able to that have these four year degrees where it's more theoretical, in my opinion. And people that come out of boot camps have more practical knowledge. Can you explain what you mean by the theoretical versus the practical? Yeah, so the theoretical is specifically it's it's things in computer science. There's concepts of, you know, link lists, graphs, trees, and all these algorithms, which do get applied. But it seems that it's like those are very kind of niche roles that really need to employ that on a day-to-day basis. Whereas, you know, somebody uh, who has practical abilities is somebody who really knows how to build a website. They really know how to build an app and they can they know the nuances of whatever language they're working in, the framework that they're working with. Or they also know kind of the differences of when to do something versus when not to. And so it's kind of, so actually I can use this analogy. It's kind of like the idea of a mechanic versus, you know, a rocket scientist who knows how combustion and the chemicals work. The theoretical aspect is the combustion and knowing how science works and the chemicals and the electrons and neutrons and what's exactly happening there versus a mechanic who may not know anything about combustion or the science of it, but can make your car run better or, you know, get more gas efficiency. And so that's kind of the way I separate the two. Tell me about what else you learned at the boot camp. 
I mean, well, so specifically, like we learned Ruby, Ruby on Rails, databases, uh, you know, we use Postgres, uh, MongoDB and things like that. So it's really just learning how to set them up to make it work. One of the cool ways in which we can see how fast the tech revolution has happened around here is to think about it through the development of these programming languages. If you zoom out in time, you realize most of the popular ones today did not exist when people like Gabriel or myself were growing up in the Bay Area. Ruby, for example, is a programming language designed and developed in the mid-1990s by Yukihiro Mats Matsumoto in Japan. That's the same year as the Windows 95 software release. Ruby, by the way, supports different paradigms, which is a way to classify a programming language based on its features, and many big companies use it, including Airbnb. Ruby on Rails was released about nine years later as a free open-source software and helped accelerate application development. Many companies still build on top of Rails, including Hulu, which is now owned by the house of Mickey itself, Disney. You know, what's really going on under the hood? I don't have that experience or that knowledge yet. You know, and that's where the theoretical aspect comes in is those are the algorithms kind of underlying it. But, you know, I don't need to know those algorithms to be able to know how to use Mongo or how to use Postgres or you know, SQL in general and that kind of thing. So I, that's kind of those are the specific frameworks that we learned. But I think the one thing that that App Academy really focused on and the one thing that I really enjoyed out of it was they teach you how to be adaptable. They teach you how to kind of be resourceful and how to learn because of the fact that they're basically giving you a new language every week to learn that you have to stay on top of it. You, if you slack for a day or half a day, like you're going to fall behind. And, you know, that applies, I think, to any job out in the real world because of the fact that, you know, it's, actually I was just reading an article earlier today about GraphQL, you know, how GraphQL is going to be the new kind of flavor of the, of the forever seeable future instead of programmable yeah. yeah and and so graphql is basically going to replace restful apis apis by the way are application programming interfaces which are parts in a program to communicate when and how to fix changes and develop software there are also many types of apis including in hardware software and inside an application right on your web browser and I mean, it makes sense, you know, when they look at the pros and cons and the arguments of why that's happening, it makes sense. You know, but going back to App Academy, that's kind of, they, they teach you how to be adaptable to learn that. So right now as, you know, as I go into this next job or even the job after that, I may need to learn GraphQL very quickly. I might need to learn in a week or two to be able to use it at my job. So I think I, I have that ability more than people who go to a four-year school and kind of take their time to, you know, go over things repetitiously and get that ingrained into them. So That's cool. Now, tell me something else about your life that you're thinking about as you move on to the next phase, something that pushes you and inspires you. Well, actually, so uh, you brought up his name earlier. Uh, Eli is one of the guys at App Academy. He's kind of like the main career coach or whatever. Eli Blair. Eli Blair. Yeah. He's a really cool guy, very... Very intense. He's, as he puts it himself, he's a, he's, he's a no bullshitter. He, he's, he shoots it straight, which he does, uh, which is good. You know, at least you know where he stands. And so he has you think about three words as he's kind of helping you prepare for your pitches and your interviews and that kind of thing. You, you're supposed to think of three words. I forget exactly what mine are right now, but it was like family, power, and I had a third one. And those are kind of supposed to be like your mantras, your kind of guiding principles. And so the thing with family for me, it, it's always been family. I mean, as long as I can remember, my family's always been important to me. My family, my brother, my sister, my nephew are always important to me. And as I move forward into this, that's what I'm remembering and why I'm doing this. It's so that I can be in a position to where if I need to, I can help them later on. The other one was choice. 
And the idea for that, and that's kind of the, the thing that I'm remembering, is that pursuing this career path gives me a much higher ceiling than I had previously in any other career or any other job. And getting myself into a position where I can ultimately make every choice for myself of when I want, where I want, how I want, why I want, kind of like that ideal situation of like, I live life my way on my own terms. Granted, there's variables and it's not always ever 100% mm-hmm. perfect, but that's kind of like the idea that I can always dictate my time. And then the power just comes from that. Once I, you know, once I feel I'm at a point that's kind of in that point, then that's where my power comes out in the sense of I feel like I can then use whatever success or kind of advantage or anything that I have to help others. I want to switch gears to music since you're a music guy. Give me artists that you really like and then match them with one of their songs and explain your choice. Oh, you know what? I'd, ha- I'd have to pick Walk. Walk from Pantera. If, yeah. The thing about that that I really like is, and, you know, people like blame Pantera with like the rise of new metal because what Pantera did was they took heavy metal and they gave it like that southern groove, that kind of, that feeling and that twist that made it, it gave, it gave it a rhythm. It gave it a hook. But you know what I was thinking here was that programmers and music have a lot of things in common. A couple of years ago, I commissioned a story from a coder friend of mine, Adrian Jewell, who's also an accomplished musician, and he put together the connection to why programming and music making are similar. They're both forms of state management. That is, like a state of being. And I'm paraphrasing from Adrian here, where he says that a person that runs an algorithm in their head when they write code and tracks various possible configurations about how the program is going to run. That is, through the execution of their work, the computer program changes in the same way the state of music changes through notes. In the end, he says, the creator of the music feels the same way as a programmer, contented by the completion of a piece of work that comes from tangible decisions they made and that can work or sound beautifully. How that translates to have a metal, though, is something metalheads understand better than I do. I, I just yeah. realized that mm-hmm. I didn't ask you which, uh, which instruments you play. Uh, guitar. Guitar. Yeah. yeah. Uh, acoustic, hard metal? Both acoustic, electron, electric, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I've actually, I mean, I want to expand. I've, like, dabbled with piano. Drums, meh, I don't know if I'd really get into that. I mean, I can play bass, but I'm the way I phrase it is I'm a guitar player playing bass, as opposed to people who are actual bass players. You know, where you think of people like Flea or uh, Les Claypool or uh, John Paul Jones from Zeppelin. Those guys, to me, are like real bass players. Like, they love the bass. They play the bass. They look at it as a different instrument. So awesome. that's cool. Now, let's stay with the music theme here. And I just thought about this. Let's separate your pre-programming life from your boot camp experience and then what you see as your future which segments of your life fit some of your favorite songs? Well, so you can't see it on the, uh, if you're listening, but I have a tattoo on my right forearm. This is, I won't be the wasted potential. Those are lyrics from a band Slipknot. Uh, It's their, I believe it's their third album, but it's the song Pulse of the Maggots. And he goes in one of the verses, he does this whole little kind of build up to it. But basically, at one point in the song, he says, I won't be the wasted potential. And he's talking, in my opinion, he's talking about, you know, the fact that he believes in himself and he's not going to just waste his life by not doing anything, by being complacent. And I actually, yeah, so that resonated with me so much. And I do like Slipknot. They're not in the top five, unfortunately, but I do like them. They're definitely up there. 
Uh, and so, but just the lyrics really hit home with me. And so I got that tattooed on my forearm as like a daily reminder. So every day I wake up, I look at that. I also have another tattoo on my left forearm, which is Japanese for my, the way I tell people or what I tell people means is that uh, to live in the present moment. But I think realistically what it says kind of verbatim is that I am here now. Um, I had a friend help me with that. I don't speak Japanese. <laughs> so, but yeah, I won't be the wasted potential or the lyrics like on that point of, you know, what I've, where I've been in the past and where I'm going in the future. Like that's kind of what I feel is that I don't want to just waste my life by settling for things or just, you know, being complacent and not trying to achieve something. To me, that's like the biggest thing. Finally, since this is Tequeria, I want to ask you about your Latinx identity. What does it mean to you to be a Latino? So, like, the first thing I can think of is in elementary school, you know, it was it was in South San Francisco. It was predominantly Latino, you know, Latinas. And growing up, I didn't speak Spanish. You know, it was I actually found this out later after my mom died that she actually didn't want us to speak Spanish because she wanted us to kind of fit in and assimilate with, you know, the Bay Area and the area that we were in. And, you know... Part of me feels like I wish he didn't, but at the same time, it's, you know, I was a kid and I didn't have a choice. What can I do? But I understand why she did it. And so what that did, though, was there was a lot of times where elementary school, junior high and high school, where I got bullied because I wasn't, quote unquote, Latino enough. And that, like, that bothers me now, even still to this day, because it's like, what does that mean, right? And so, <clears throat> I mean... By other Mexican-American. By other, yeah, by other Latinos, you know, what are you, they were all from different countries, backgrounds, you know, origins and that kind of thing. But it was just that same mentality that because I didn't speak Spanish, because maybe I didn't dress like them or I didn't talk like them, that I was always kind of an outcast. And, you know, it's, I've said this too to other people, it's like for non-Latinos, I was the Latino, but for Latinos, I was the, I was non-Latino. It was like in that middle ground, you know, of like not enough or too much for one or the other. And so I think that's kind of been my identity is that I, I learned early on to just kind of be like, all right, well, you know, what if I'm different than I'm different? You know, I'm not going to, what other people think or the stereotypes of what should be doesn't define me. And so being Latino, just, it, I think of my family. And I, that's like, yeah, that's like the biggest thing is that when I think of Latinos, I think of family. You know, I think of all the, how my Theo used to have barbecues every summer and he would bring everybody together and, and you know, going to my, my other uncle's house and doing and playing music and just, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I don't have any like specific details of what, but like Latino to me just means taking care of each other and helping each other out. Now on to our conversation with Stephanie Bajamon, the programmer originally from Miami who ended up going to college in Chicago and stay there to work at Capital One. Her story touches on the 2008 recession and her challenges as a minority in a career track not accustomed to people like her. So we're talking with Stephanie Bahamon, who's talking to me from hot and muggy Chicago. So let's start off by asking you what you do at your job as a software engineer in Chicago. Like you said, I'm a software engineer at Capital One. I work in their card line of business, helping them out with uh, different partnership technologies. I'm mostly a backend engineer, which means I work uh, using Java to create different web APIs to make sure everything happens well behind the scene for our partnerships. 
I am a member of what's called their technology development program or TDP rotation, uh, TDP program, which is used for people who have just graduated college as computer science majors and are software engineers for Capital One. But I did not actually graduate as a software engineer. I graduated from Northwestern University with dual majors in uh, economics and industrial engineering. And I was hired into this program called CODA, which stands for Capital One Developers Academy. It's basically a six-month-long boot camp that is meant to train full-stack engineers. And from there, I entered the TDP program. These types of paid internship development programs are common at tech companies like Apple, General Electric, IBM, and Microsoft, among many other Fortune 500 companies. Each has their own structure and application process, but most have extended training and mentorship options. Uber, for example, has what they call an apprentice program built for developers that did not study undergraduate computer science. Some are more competitive than others, but it is a place where many tech companies say they are trying to diversify the types of people who take those spots. What made you decide to get into Coda at Capital One and not get into programming as a major from the very beginning? So funnily enough, I actually started as a computer science major in college. And then as tends to happen to, I think, many kids, particularly back black and brown kids who are first gen, I was like, no, no, this is too difficult. But I really wanted to be an engineer. I had gone to what's called a magnet school in Miami, Florida. Some other areas call it selective enrollment schools, where you kind of have a focus and you work on specific things as elective classes. Mine was um, engineering, and I wanted to stick with engineering. So one day I walked around our majors fair in the engineering school, and I noticed that the only two schools that had any sort of like faculty representation that were women were the industrial engineering school and the environmental engineering school. And I wasn't really interested in environmental engineering, but I didn't know anything about industrial engineering. So I just went up and I talked to the professor and she was a total sweetheart, ended up being a mentor to me all four years in college. And it made me decide that I was going to switch to industrial engineering. It just seemed a little bit less intimidating. Now, towards the end of my time at Northwestern, I took some statistical programming focused courses. I realized that that was a part of industrial engineering that I enjoyed the most. And I realized that I kind of had missed the boat by self-selecting myself out of a computer science degree. And I found CODA, which seemed like a great fit for me because it was I was going to be able to keep programming and I was also going to be able to work at a bank, which was something that interests me. You know, I was an econ major. Um, I think that f uh, financial technology is a really exciting place to be. And that's kind of how I ended up uh, getting picked up for CODA. One of the requirements for CODA is that you need to show some sort of you don't need to be a computer science major, but you need to show previous interests in technology. And my statistical programming courses covered that pretty much. Let's talk about the CODA program. It takes longer than the usual bootcamp coding company, especially compared to the main ones like Hack Reactor or App Academy. Tell me what you learned there and what were some of the highlights? Sure. So I was part of the first cohort of, of CODA. What I learned was a lot of full stack engineering, mostly Java, HTML, and CSS. Sorry, not Java, JavaScript. Um, a lot of working with Node, working with the different particular Node packages, Express. By the way, here are some of the explanations of tech terms Stephanie mentions. Full-stack engineering is both the front-end and back-end of the website's web development, where the front-end programmer works to create what you literally see and interact with on a website, known often as the presentation layer, like browsing Netflix movie titles, writing and sending emails, and reading websites and clicking links on said websites. All of it is a type of data management and manipulation, knowing how to use which specific tools to make it look and work great. 
Backend web development, on the other hand, is what is known as the data access layer, where people work on the architecture and database administration, testing communication between computers that can be focused on the operating system and can also refer to hardware, like your phone. So for like when your phone knows which part of the touchscreen you are touching with your fingers. While most engineers can be considered full-stack programmers, meaning they can write any part of the program, many choose or are asked to focus on one aspect of the stack, depending on the job and the size of the company and its needs. I'm learning about authentication, which, you know, as a bank is something that's pretty important. Um, we also worked with a lot of the modern front-end web frameworks like React and Angular and touched a little bit of cloud, more modern Linux-based technologies as well, particularly Docker and AWS. AWS, as most people know, is short for Amazon Web Services, arguably Amazon's most important product outside its global superstore. It is an on-demand cloud platform for thousands and thousands of companies. Basically, it's now considered the infrastructure of the whole web. It makes Amazon a ton of money, and web developers, especially those starting their own internet-based companies, need to know how to work with it. And we really, I mean, I loved it. It was, when I was trying to figure out, you know, between this and a few competing offers, I thought to myself, like, oh, I should really go to the place where I think I can learn the most. And it's hard to beat out, you know, a six-month boot camp as your first job as far as being able to learn the most. And I just, I really had a great time. I made some really great friends. Capital One was really, is still really excited about the Kokoda program. There's been quite a few cohorts since I graduated mine. And I was able to just learn so much and do some projects, some small projects, internal projects that ended up helping the company too along the way. What was your favorite experience at Coda? Was there a favorite example or a moment that you remember with fondness? Yeah, so at the end of Coda, every everyone gets to do Coda is broken up by uh, different projects that we end up working on for like over the course of a week. And at the end of the six-month boot camp, you kind of ended, get to do a, lar a larger project that ends up being used internally sometimes. And I got to work on um, creating a splash page basically for onboarding new people onto Capital One, just kind of making it look a little bit sleeker, getting people excited about working for a company that's really forward-looking as far as tech goes. So that was something that I really enjoyed working on, not only because I got to work on a team and kind of get used to my current style of work at Capital One, which is like the sort of agile sprint planning style of work, but I also got to do something that the company still uses. So that, that felt really gratifying. So let's talk about said financial technology. Provide the audience, if you can, a summary of what's going on in this lane of the industry that's really exciting. Yeah, I actually, I saw a tweet the other day that said, like, in 2019, every startup is either trying to be a bank or a healthcare provider. And I thought that was pretty funny. Um, but what I have particularly enjoyed is not just the fact that Capital One is trying to move forward. Like, we've got, we, you know, we, we try to stay current and modern. We're a multi-cloud company, and we use a lot of the better practices that is kind of what's widespread across tech, you know, infrastructure is code. Our devs do a decent amount of what's called SRE work as well, or site reliability engineering work as well. So site reliability engineers are people that take on infrastructure and operations issues, that a piece of software can scale and that it's working. Quick example is what happened at the beginning of the Disney Plus streaming launch last fall. Millions of people all logged on to check out the service at the same time, 
most to watch the Star Wars series The Mandalorian, ostensibly to see the hype about a super cute new character affectionately named Baby Yoda. I could confirm it's very cute. So the number of users clogged the systems and forced some to get kicked out of the service or not to be able to log into it in the first place. On that day, likely dozens, maybe more, of site reliability engineers were on call to make sure everything went okay. When many people could not log on, many more were called upon to get it done and get people their streaming Yodas. What I really enjoy in particular is is knowing that our business is, our, our motto basically is change banking for good. And we're doing something that a lot of other companies are trying to do for the developing world here in the United States. Uh, credit access is something that Capital One cares a lot about. We Some of our customers tend to be what are called subprime customers or people that you know, don't necessarily have that 750 credit score. And being able to make sure that those people get access to their first credit card. You know, credit is one of the defining numbers that follows you in American modern culture. Like if you have a bad credit score, it's hard for you to get a car. It's hard for you to get a house. So being able to help people build up their credit scores by either giving people with bad or no credit uh, uh, access to credit lines is uh, something that I really enjoy that Capital One does. According to Unidos U.S., the largest national Hispanic civil rights and advocacy organization in the United States, Latinx people have some of the worst access to credit in the country. That organization has worked, amongst many programs, to, quote, develop a program for smaller lines of credit to immigrants who need help paying for costs associated with naturalization, end quote. They found that Latinos are twice as likely to be credit invisible than white people. Credit invisibility is when a person does not have a record of credit with one of the three largest credit ratings in the United States, Experian, Equifax, or TransUnion. Why does the community have such a bad credit outcome? Because of long-standing, meaning, decades-old credit systems that for years graded Latinos as too risky to loan to, meaning redlining, having fewer banks in their neighborhood, and Unidos U.S. says the credit system does not take into account cultural norms such as the use of cash or new apps for everyday consumptions. Why do you like being an engineer? I really enjoy that I get to go to work every single day and do some really cool problem solving. Be that building something or fixing a bug that's been bugging me for weeks. And I like the fact that I get to do it in an environment that, like, I can be myself as a person. I can bring my whole self. And I get to do it with coworkers who are both emphatic and good at their jobs. Yeah, I, a lot of my other friends are consultants or, like, research assistants. And not to say there's anything wrong with those jobs, but I know that at the end of the day, they, like, write a report and they may or may not see that change enacted. Whereas I know that when I go to work and I work on something that's going to end up being pushed to production and being used by someone somewhere. And I really, really enjoy that fact. How diverse is your group and how do you feel about it? Diversity is definitely one of the core tenets of, of what we're trying to do. You know, we've got what are called employee resource groups. We call them business resource groups for uh, most uh, populations in the United States. We've got our Women in Tech, which the Women in Tech group actually has their own summit every year. Yeah, we have like our Blacks in Tech, Hispanics in Tech, which I'm a part of. We have a group for veterans. We have a group for differently abled people, which I think is really cool because I think it's one of the populations that tends to be most invisible for better or for, for worse in tech, which is unfortunate. 
And every, every time we, we try to be like, encourage people to talk about themselves and be who they are. I would say my teams have been pretty diverse on average. I've never been the, the only woman on a tech team ever, which is a rarity sometimes in, in the tech world. Like every other company in the world, this is something that we're continually working on. Let's talk about your background now, how you grew up. I know that you're a Colombian American. So I was born in Colombia. I moved to the United States when I was two. I moved to Miami, Florida. Uh, the suburb I grew up in, West Kendall, um, is the th percentage-wise third most Colombian American heavy location in the United States. So that was really interesting because growing up, I didn't realize until I left for college, really, that there were parts of the United States that were not heavily Latinx, at the very least had some aspect of Colombian in the area. When, when I went for college, I realized that most of the new friends I'd made, um, I was the first Colombian person they'd ever met. So it was really interesting to grow up in Miami because so, so much of what I thought was like particular American or Colombian or Cuban culture, I did not end up seeing once I had left. And I think it was kind of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, I definitely experienced pretty severe culture shock when I left for college. Some of the new people I met thought it was really weird that I called my mom every day. Or I, I in particular, I had a, I moved to Chicago right before winter hit, so I had a really difficult time coping with the fact that there wasn't any mango that was just fresh all the time. And sometimes it's, it's like, oh, these are, these are small little things. And other times it's like things would add up. Like, for example, I would get a lot of people asking me where I was from because they thought I wasn't from the United States. I had a very strong Miami accent and a lot of people hadn't heard that before. And especially someone who considers herself like pretty strongly American, I'm a pretty patriotic person, definitely kind of had a, a, a mental weight. You know, some people call them microaggressions, but um, I really enjoyed growing up in the area I grew up in because it gave me a really great sense of not just like Colombian culture, but also this sort of pan-Latino culture that is is pretty prominent in Miami. Like, you know, you've, my best friends, I can count like two Cubans, one Nicaraguan, uh, one person from the Dominican Republic, a few Bahamians, a few Mexicans, a few Puerto Ricans, you know, and that, that was just like, everyone knew what that meant. Everyone was, a, was aware growing up of like the similarities and also the differences, which is really cool and something that I think I took for granted until I left. microaggressions that you faced in Chicago? So it was, I guess, I think the most prominent one is definitely the one people asking me like, oh, where am I from? Because that accent doesn't sound American or like, where am I really from? It was kind of strange at first to realize like, you know, I was in an engineering school. There's not that many Latinx people, let alone that many Latinas. So there were definitely a few times, especially my freshman year, when I would walk in to a class of like, you know, 40 kids and I'd be like, oh, I'm one of three women, I'm the only Latina. I need to not let it get to my head that my performance isn't necessarily a referendum on how every Latina does in tech, in, in engineering, you know? Or the sort of realization that hit me, I think the 
very first day when I walked into the dining hall and I was like, the only people in this dining hall that look like me are the food service workers. And not to say there's anything wrong with doing a food service work. Of course, these those people really helped me out a lot throughout the course of my college career. But just to say that I was like, oh, I'm definitely not in Kansas anymore. Were you able to connect with the Latino community there? And which community did you find? And where were you comfortable? Also, if you can, tell me about how you felt being the first person in your family to go to college. Yeah, so um, most of my friends did not end up being Latinx people. I had a few Latinx friends, which were very important and near and dear to me. But I actually joined the marching band when I went to Northwestern. And even now, yeah, most of my friends are from the marching band, or most of the friends I made in college are from the marching band. Um, and besides that, I also, neither of my parents uh, went to college in the United States. My dad didn't go to college at all. So I was the first person to in my family to, like, go away for college. Oh, yeah, I mean, the responsibility that comes with being the first person to go away for college in your family is definitely something I think was omnipresent the entire time I was at college. Much to the de detriment of my mental health, particularly the first year, because as far as my parents knew, you know, I was off. I was, I had gone to Northwestern on a needs-based, almost completely full financial aid. So they were like, the girl is off. She's having a great time. She's meeting all these new friends. It must be so great for you to be having these experiences. We're so happy. This is why we moved to the United States. So you could go away to this fantastic school, have this like, ultra-American experience. And, you know, internally, I was like, I am doing poorly in my classes. I feel really bad because I'm the only person who who looks like me. I didn't know how to approach office hours. I didn't know how to ask for help. These winters are terrible. Why did I leave Miami to go to the first Chicago winter, in, the quarters of Chicago winter in 136 years? From NBC News World Headquarters in New York, this is NBC Nightly News with Brian Williams. The weather has turned serious tonight, a big area moving in to stay. The air has come from the Arctic. It will stretch so far west to east and so deep into the south that tonight the estimate is most of the country, 240 million people, will be affected by this. One example, Chicago may not reach a high of zero tomorrow. So there was a decent amount, at, at least on my end, of like not being able to communicate properly to people my loved ones, um, I'm very close to my older brother, that I, I needed help or the new friends I had made that I had needed help. And that was something that I kind of had to unlearn and that I still struggle with going forward sometimes because, you know, if, if I'm like, oh, work's getting a little bit too heavy or, oh, I don't feel like I'm doing uh, excellently at work, which Capital One is really great about supporting me, I, I will sometimes struggle to communicate that to my family because I don't want them to stress out too much. So there's, there's definitely that weight of like, I'm the first person to be doing this. I really don't want to let my family down. In addition, some of my mom's friends were kind of insensitive to her about it because my mom had always wanted me. She was really, really sad when I left, but she was very, very proud of me. She was like, I'm not going to clip your wings. This is a fantastic opportunity, you know, to go to this school and get so much of it paid for. But that just wasn't done. And even, you know, most of my family is still in Colombia. Most of my family in Colombia still lives with their parents. It just wasn't done. She didn't know that many people who had done that growing up. And a lot of her friends were like, does your daughter hate you? Why is she leaving you? And I know that that was, yeah, that was really hard for her. And I, 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 I think that knowing that, that she was like, at the very least holding on, like, it's really hard for me to be away from my daughter. 
But knowing that like, oh, she's having this great time off at college, making these friends, learning these things. It was also pretty hard for me to be like, I'm also struggling with all these other things, you know, like feeling out of place and like feeling like I don't belong here. And that was definitely one of the good things about aspect of being Latinx. So how did you handle that pressure, both at school and with your family? Yeah, so a lot of it was, you know, just kind of keeping my mom updated every day on like cool stuff I was doing. And, you know, I'm Northwestern was really hard and things were tough for a little bit. But ultimately, it was definitely like the most gratifying experience of my life. I'm really happy I went. And I did get to do a lot of really, really cool things. You know, with the marching band, I got to play at Rigby Field and I got to like visit Wisconsin for the first time. And I got to see snow for the first time, which my parents, my mom had never seen until she came to visit me like my junior year of college. So it was a lot of keeping her posted, I guess, just like on the things that happened to me that were great. And knowing that like, you know, it the, it, the separation, a sort of process of like, oh, I don't live with you now was hard. And I think it's still hard on her in some ways. You mentioned that mental health was a key part of your struggle. So how much were you aware of that while that was going on at the time? And how did you manage to improve from then on? missing school things as much as possible, but sometimes it was unavoidable. I really didn't want to have to ask um, my parents for money because often they didn't have any money to give, you know? And it was just, I hate to be like, oh, it's just sort of the thing I did. But I, I kind of understood that it was going to be an aspect of my life in college. Um, I've had a job since I was 16, which I don't think is that uncommon for many first-gen people. Like, you kind of realize growing up pretty quickly. I was lucky in that I never had to provide for my family, but I knew that if I could pay for my own prom tickets, if I could pay for my own, you know, uh, graduation stuff, it would make things a little bit easier for my family. And the same thing kind of, that same line of thought still continued on in college and even now, like in college when I was like, oh, I can maybe ask my parents for money, but I can earn that money instead for books. Even if it means I'll have to like sacrifice going to office hours and make a lower grade. It was something I prioritized. I, I really enjoy engineering. I like it a lot, but I'm not going to lie to you. Part of the reason why I have this job is because it, it allows me to provide not just for myself, but for my family as well when they need it. That was something I've thought about since I was like 12 or 13 or 14. Um, where, where I grew up too was uh, we were lucky because my, my parents were thinking about reverse financing their mortgage getting like a reverse mortgage right around 2006. And we're lucky because in where I was, it was, you know, ground zero for the 2008 global crisis for housing. There were a lot of people who I know, a lot of kids whose parents lost their houses and a few had to go back to the country that they were from because they had nowhere to live in the States. Tonight on 60 Minutes. When it comes to bailouts of American business, Barney Frank and the Congress may be just getting started. Nearly two trillion tax dollars have been shoveled into the hole that Wall Street dug, and people wonder, where's the bottom? It turns out the abyss is deeper than most people think, because there is a second mortgage shock heading for the economy. In the executive suites of Wall Street and Washington, you're beginning to hear alarm about a new wave of mortgages with strange names that are about to become all too familiar. If you thought subprimes were insanely reckless, wait till you hear what's coming. How old were you when this reverse mortgage-induced depression happened? Oh, I must have been in around eighth grade. And I, I think that, that that's always been something that I've kept in mind as I've made my career choices. Tell me about how you dealt with that 
at that moment in time with your friends specifically? If I had been like 20 when that had been happening, I would have understood more. But as a 13-year-old, you know, the 13-year-old did not understand what a subprime mortgage was. So for me, one day my friends are here, the next day my friends have to go back to the Dominican Republic because they lost their house. And a lot of the people that I knew growing up were immigrants, Latinx immigrants. And these populations were kind of particularly preyed on by subprime lenders. I do know that, like, my, my parents are examples of this. We used to get, I remember seeing them, flyers all the time, just like, refinance your home, get a second mortgage, you know. Miami is such a hot location to be buying things in. But they were still trying pretty diligently to pay off their mortgage. And we're, it, my mom, I think, kind of talked my dad out of it, which is a good thing because otherwise I don't know what would have happened, you know. But at that moment of just being like, wow, things can go south really, really quickly for a lot of people definitely made me think about is, is a factor that I weighed in in choosing my career because software engineering is a relatively stable career if you can do it and it pays pretty well. What did your parents do when you were growing up? So growing up, my mom had a few different jobs instead of my dad. My mom started as a housekeeper for ho a hotel chain down in the Keys. And then she started up her own small business being a babysitter out of our house. And she got hired at daycare. And she worked at Costco for a little bit. And finally, she, she was a nutritionist back in Colombia. She um, graduated from... La Universidad de Antioquia. She's from Maine. And she managed to get a job as a nutritionist for the uh, Florida Department of Health, particularly the Women, Infant, Children's Program, or WIC, or Nutrition Educator, my bad, Nutrition Educator. Um, so she works nowadays as a client manager. People who are under a certain income limit come to the office, come see her, and she helps guide them to like different ways of of getting some resources from the government to help pay for healthy foods. And my dad never graduated from college, so for the when we first moved here, he worked as a taxi cab driver, and then for a while he worked at the Mikasuki, um Casino at the edge of Miami-Dade County, first as a security guard, and then as someone who watches the like little TVs that are all around casinos. And those people are called uh, gaming supervisors. So my dad's retired now. Um, he actually works part-time as a samples person at Costco, which is funny because that means that both of my parents have now worked for Costco. Um, and that's reflected on their children. I have an older brother, and both he and I have Costco memberships despite living together. <laughs> Stephanie's family's experience holding multiple jobs all the way into retirement reflects a difficult reality for many of the Latinx families in the country, but one that is also shared by many families from other ethnicities. A U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics report from late 2018 found that about 5% of Americans hold more than one job, with Latinx or Hispanics at about 3.5%. But the Latinx number is likely much lower than it actually is because of lack of reporting from the community. Why do people have multiple jobs? The BLS says because people, quote, need extra income or they want to gain more experience or explore different interests, end quote. It is also because the Latinx Hispanic population in aggregate is struggling to gain wealth. The poverty rate of Hispanics is about 18.3%, according to a report by NPR in 2019. That's despite a growth in population from the 1990s in population from 22 million people to 50.5 million. The poverty is still close to double that of the overall U.S. rate. Many Latinos have also kept up the same number of multiple jobs while keeping their income steady, 
even as the cost of living has gone up. But Hispanics, according to the Center for American Progress, a public policy research and advocacy organization, earn about one-fourth less than white workers do. One-fourth. And that's not including, say, the 7 million Central American and Mexican immigrants that don't have legal status. This is from their paper, and I'm quoting, Being undocumented often leads to exploitation. It makes it harder to get an education. It forces people to work for low wages in the informal economy. It makes it difficult to start and build a company. End quote. The Center for American Progress also found that white families in America have a median wealth of $142,180 compared with $20,765 for Latinx families. So it's not surprising that someone like Stephanie wants to supercharge her expected earnings and to help families like hers. So after that, what was going on in Colombia when your parents were growing up? Tell me a little bit more about their lives there. So my mom was one of 10. My dad was one of eight. He was the oldest one of his family. And they were born to, I like to call them country poor in a dirt poor country because he was born in um, the department of Tolima, but to a campesino family. And they sent him away to live with his aunt and uncle because they had a little bit more resources at the time, his mom and dad did. And my mom was born in a small village in Antokia, but her family moved to Medellin when she was around five. And she grew up in Medellin. Parents met in Bogota. A mutual friend introduced them because my mom worked in the Amazon for a little bit, and then she moved to Bogota. Um, my dad had been hopping around Colombia trying to start up some some textile companies. A lot of them didn't work out. And, you know, at that time, Colombia was... Uh, when my, my brother was born in 91, I was born in 95. My dad had had a few other siblings here in the States. He had gotten his citizenship a really long time ago in the States. So my brother and I were born American citizens, even though we were born um, in Colombia. Because uh, when it turns out when you're born to an American citizen abroad you are born yourself with citizenship as long as they can prove their citizenship, which is how Ted Cruz got his citizenship, actually. When we were born, Colombia was a pretty dangerous place, and my dad was spending a lot of time in the States with his brothers, and my mom got tired of, like, raising two kids and wanting to be with her husband, so they had decided to move to Miami, which is where some of my dad's family was and where he had lived at various points in time over his life. And that's how we ended up moving to the States. Do you ever visit your family in Colombia? We don't visit my dad's side of the family as much because most of them are in the States now. They live in Miami, so we like see them over Thanksgiving or something. But my mom's side of the family, we try and see and visit pretty often. It was really hard to when we were younger. Money was tight. International trips are not very cheap. So up until age 18, I only went back to Colombia twice. And ever since age 18 and them having paid off the the house, they have a little bit more money. How do you feel about Latinx and tech at the moment in terms of representation? And do you feel like your experience is representative of some of the challenges that Latinx feel? I would be surprised if you've talked to anyone who's Latino or Latina in tech and doesn't feel some some aspect of like representation. 
of of like kind of being like, all right, I'm this person who's here, and I I might be the only Latinx person in the room right now, but I gotta I gotta do it. I'm really happy to be in tech. I really enjoy being in it. Oh, right now there's nothing else I'd I'd rather be doing. I kind of recognize that we we have a long way to go as far as getting women and Latino Latinx people and Latinas in particular, I guess, since that's the intersection of my identities in tech. Um and it's it's interesting because there's a lot of different ways that can be tackled, right? There's the pipeline problem kind of an example of that, right? I started out in computer science and then dropped it because I thought it was too hard, even though I still ended up as a software engineer, which is great. But if I had known that, maybe I should have stayed in computer science in the first place. And there's a lot of Latinx people don't go to college in the first place, even though they're really well qualified for it. And it's because they just don't know. Before Stephanie gets into the pipeline problem and what it meant for her to get into it, let us very briefly talk about it. She defines pipeline the way many tech companies do by saying that the reason many tech companies do not hire more people from minority communities is because there are simply not enough of them with the skills to take those jobs. In fact, a few years ago, Facebook said that its main issue growing its diversity staff was, quote, at the most fundamental level, appropriate representation in technology or any other industry will depend upon more people having the opportunity to gain necessary skills through the public education system, end quote. But many people who work in tech believe, based on data, that that is a huge myth. It has been found by several reports, including one by USA Today, that American universities graduate students at twice the rate they get hired by U.S. tech companies. The bigger problem is that executives from tech companies still hire more people for their companies who look like them. A problem that is exacerbated by their internal and external recruiters who need to make money off full-time workers hired by them. Then there are the issues around unfair treatment of Latinx once they get into companies, like not getting the same opportunities to move up, or because of the weird perceptions that they are naturally not as good as their colleagues. So it's a complicated situation getting into tech, and talented people like Stephanie have to navigate it all, going against the current to do what they love. When I applied to schools, I kind of just like looked the list of schools who had engineering schools had stuff that weren't engineering schools and were near bodies of water. And that was my criteria for applying to college, which I, I, I came to Northwestern sight unseen. I never did a college visit to anywhere. I only found out about Northwestern because a Northwestern representative visited my high school and I wanted to skip my bio class that day. And I, I'm lucky even that a Northwestern representative visited my high school. And it's because I went to a special high school. If I had gone to a neighborhood school, my older brother went to our neighborhood public school, which don't get me wrong, big supporter of public schools. But the only schools that came to visit him were the local community college and Florida International University, which is the local state college down there. So he didn't know about Northwestern until I applied. He, the only schools he knew of really were through college sports, of all things. And my brother's just as smart and was just as good a student as I was in high school. And, but a lot of reach out, luckily this is getting better, but a lot of reach out just wasn't done and isn't done. And then there's the aspect of a lot of companies are trying to do better at this, but a lot of companies do have pretty terrible environments to work in if you're a person of color or if you're a woman. I've been re really lucky that every team that I've worked on has been pretty diverse. And for example, I currently have a woman manager. And that's really great because when I talk to her, I don't have to be, feel really stressed out about being like, does my manager think I'm struggling because I'm a woman? So yeah, it's just every room I go in, every conversation I have, every message that I send, I'm aware of the fact that I'm doing it with the identity I have. And I think that is a, 
ultimately a great thing. I'm very happy and proud to be a Latina and I'm very happy and proud to be a Latina in tech. So we know that you loved being a part of the band, but I've also heard that music plays an even bigger role in your life. Tell me more about that, please. My parents have both always been big music fans. They exposed me to not just classical music, but a lot of like Dixieland jazz or the classics of salsa music, Cuban music, Colombian music. In middle school, I joined the band. My brother, who I'm very, very close with, he's my best friend. I actually live with him and moved to Chicago to live with him, is really, really into music. I have very fond memories of, he's about four years older than me, so... Him being like 16 and picking me up from school or something as a 12-year-old and driving me home and us like playing music as loudly as we could, playing Little Wayne or whatever as loudly as we could in our mom's like 91 Previa, which is a Toyota van. Very cool back then. Uh, so that's always been like a way that I've bonded with him is talking about music and performing music. I feel like this is actually pretty common for engineers. It was definitely pretty common in Northwestern marching band. Engineers... People from the school. It is a really great expression for that of myself that sometimes I get to do at work, sometimes not. Like artistic impression, I think is expression is pretty important, and it's it's always been something that I valued a lot. Actually, not only was I in the marching band, but I also helped start up a freestyle rap interest group. I was an early adopter of the group. It's, it was called a dojo, which was a backronym for Don't Only Just Observe, and I really enjoyed it because I, I grew up a huge hip hop fan. I still am a really, really big hip hop fan. It was this really great time to just kind of like kick back with some people that I knew and cipher. And even though I was so, so bad at it, I just really enjoyed the kind of fun and wordplay of like sitting around and riffing on something, not necessarily battle rapping, but just seeing how many things you can make rhyme with cat or uh, just kind of seeing what comes off the top of your head when you start trying to freestyle rap. I don't know if you've ever freestyle rapped, Jose, but it's definitely an experience when you try to do it for the first time. Uh, yeah, I am here with the dojo. Rubbing up hands like it's Fred in the dojo. Clean it up, that's a must. Gotta stay just. Put the money in the trust. Pay daddy back for the flights. Gotta muster up the might and stay clear of the frights. About to go ape donkey conks spit in barrels. Heeding the spirits that do beg me sterile. Look up and speak with the spread of a herald. Take off like albatross out of the stable. You know I haven't done it, but after that description, I think I'm gonna try. Or I wanna try. But, you know, one of the things that has been interesting about this conversation is that it brings up, for me, the issue of breaking through expectations defined by, like, external factors developed by our culture, our meaning modern American culture. Growing up, Latinos or Latinas were not supposed to be a part of technology based on what we saw on our TVs, right, or at school. Similarly, enjoying hip-hop music is affected by culture. So... As an example, I grew up partly in Oakland and partly in Mexico. And when we came back permanently when I was 12, the hip hop culture was very important here in Oakland. And I came to love it because everybody else loved it. Despite that, I never tried it myself because I was a shy and introverted kid. But maybe more importantly, because I didn't see other Mexican-American kids rapping. No one at my house was dropping a beat, though I loved Criss Cross. But on that note, I want to ask you as a hip-hop fan, is there 
a lyric or two from a song that best illustrates your journey in technology? Gosh, that's a great question. Jeez. I'm trying to think of something that's not too corny, you know? So it would be really difficult for me to say, like, favorite songs, songs. So I'll, I'll just tell you five songs that I'm listening to right now a lot. So uh, Denzel Curry, who's from Miami, recently released a new album. And I think it's fantastic. It's like very, very Miami. In one of the songs, he has this line where it's like, I was raised off Trick, Trina, Trick, Trina, Ricky, and, and Plies, I think. Where I'm like, yep, those are the, those are the rappers I listened to uh, growing up. And uh, he's got this one song, Carol Mart, that's really great. Gold Link also just dropped an album, and he's got a few songs on there that I really like. Zulu Screams, which I think is one of the singles, and Spanish Song. I was a big Lil Wayne fan growing up, particularly the Carter Three, which was a cultural moment for anyone who grew up in the South, I think, when it dropped. Um, so my favorite songs off the Carter Three are Amelie, obviously, and uh, Let the Beat Build, which has a Kanye West beat. Um, and I've always thought, like, is a really interesting way to approach a song because you got to build it up and then and then drop it. Like, you know, he's, like, just jumping on every single new part, adding on to the beat, and I thought that's really interesting and cool. And I also grew up a pretty big Kanye fan. Well, the song I'm listening to right now most from Kanye is Dark Fantasy. I'm also a big fan of his uh, Devil in a New Dress song with uh, Rick Ross. I think that's probably my favorite Rick Ross verse. And then there's a couple of, like, Miami anthem rap songs. You know, there's, like, Born and Raised in the County of Dade. Bitch, I'm from Dade County. Pardon my French, you know. And then a, a, a lot of the, like, old Pitbull. How I couldn't be a fan of Miami rap if I didn't mention Pitbull, right? Damn It Man, I think, when it came out, I was listening to that every single day for months. It's like a whole verse. But he starts out by saying, you know, Pitbull is an underrated underdog. And every time I think about, like, being in tech... Most of the kids I know ended up not being software engineers. And I know that they're just like, there's not that many Latinx people. So sometimes people tend to underrate me. And, you know, if Pitbull, if Pitbull can rap about it and then become Mr. Worldwide, there's no reason why I can't be a great Latino in tech, you know? There's no reason why I, I'm not already. And that's the end of the show. It was reported and written by me, Jose Formoso, and produced by Neil Godbole at Airship Laboratories. It was also co-produced by the Tequeria Community Leadership. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any of the other streaming platforms where you listened. Most importantly, remember that the Tequeria Podcast and the Points of Presence Media Network are not-for-profit organizations that rely on financial help of listeners like you. So if you'd like to help us out, go to our website to subscribe to our feed and pay for the shows. Maybe you'd even like to donate your car or send us a big check. Thanks! Anyway, thank you for listening and see you next time.